Words appear. The Meet Me series. More words appear. Brought to you by Whose Blind Life Is It Anyway? Welcome everyone to Meet My Blind Life here on Whose Blind Life Is It Anyway? The show where you get to hear about everyday people talking about their everyday lives with blindness. I am your host, Victor Gouveia. And please, if you enjoy what you're about to hear, hit that like button so you can let us know if we're doing something right on this channel. And if you want to catch us live, you can do do so on YouTube or on our Facebook page or on Twitter at Blind Who's. By the way, YouTube and Facebook is our Facebook page. You can look for us under Whose Blind Life Is It Anyway? And on Twitter, it's Blind Who's. B-L-I-N-D-W-H-O-S-E. If you can't catch us live, you can always download us and uh, listen to our podcast offline when we're not broadcasting. Uh, we do have a podcast on most major platforms. Uh, you can pretty much get us in on most podcast catchers. Alexa, the Victor line of players, uh, Google, Android, um, and of course Apple's, uh, Spotify. We're there on there too. So, uh, you're not relegated to just listening to us live. But if you want to catch us live and, uh, you want to comment on our, our shows while we're live, you can do so. If, uh, if you have a story that you want to talk about, an everyday life talking, an everyday person talking about an everyday life with blindness, send me an email. Meet me on blindlife at gmail.com. Again, that's meet me on blindlife at gmail.com. Our guest this week is a celebrity of sorts. We've had until now potential celebrities. Uh, I can name one, Dora Speck for one. And, uh, oh, and Elizabeth L. She's got a great voice. We actually played some of her work on, uh, on her interview. But, um, as of now, we can officially say that we have interviewed a celebrity. Christine Malek has been a friend of mine for quite some time. Although we've never actually sat down and had a heart-to-heart. She does live here in Toronto. She grew up here in Toronto. And she's been really busy. I mean, I first met her... I first found out about her when she was doing something for the CNIB. And... uh, We've seen each other on and off through email lists and um, we've touched space once or twice but uh, she's been quite prolific in her um, in her activities her work 
you may recognize her from Talk Description to Me podcast. She is a co-host of that show. And uh, when she's not busy doing that, she's doing spoken word material. Um, she's a great writer, great author. But when she's not busy with that, she's working with NASA, if you can believe that. She's helping them create a sonographic... What do they call it? A sonographic topography of astronomical events. If you can believe that. A scientist is helping to create a sonographical astronomical events that the blind can listen to when they don't have sight to look at the events themselves. So that should be really interesting. At present, she is down in the U.S. attending a description uh, conference and uh, she's bound to return to Canada at some point. And when she does, hopefully she'll enjoy the interview we did. But in the meantime... I hope you enjoyed the interview I did with Christine Malek. And uh, let us know what you think in the comment section. Or write us. Meet me on blindlife at gmail.com. Here's Christine. <laughs> How are things been going for you? Good, 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 good. Yeah. You've been given lots of work to do? Um, the right amount, you know, not uh, overly busy, just busy enough to keep a good work-life balance in favor yeah. of life, which suits me. <laughs> uh, so, let me start off the interview by saying uh, thank you for being on the show. And what is your visual acuity at the moment? I'm totally blind, with a bit of light perception. And do we know what that stems from? Uh, it's a form of RP called Lieber's amaurosis. Okay, and this is something you've had your whole life. Uh, yes, I uh, I could see a little bit as a kid, but no color, not very far away, not very much detail. So, were you uh, were you uh, hard to take care of as a kid? I mean, I can only imagine you were rambunctious. Now, how do you come to that conclusion? No, the reports are that I was a really uh, happy, good-natured kid who was curious, but not not a troublemaker. I had um, four older siblings and two parents to keep an eye on me. So, uh, uh, no, I was I saved my my uh, shit disturbing for my late teenage years when no one was looking as closely. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, were you the only blind one in the family? Yes. Now, uh, I have to ask, is your condition hereditary or is this something that just came out yeah. of nowhere? Interestingly, everyone thought it was hereditary to the extent that my brothers and sisters all went for gene testing when they were going to have kids. And then um, 
much later in my life, I got the chance for some DNA testing and it was found out that it was actually congenital, which I believe means it's just a mutation that happened uh, in utero. So um, yeah, my siblings did all that genetic testing and fretting for nothing. <laughs> oh my. Yeah. So, so we can actually say that you are a mutant. We can, if we choose to. Yeah. Wow. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't like the sound of it personally, but, you know, I'm okay with it. Well, I mean, let's face it. They all say that we mutate into our more modern selves, don't we? Uh, I don't know about that, but it reminds me of, uh, I was recently reading the book Wake by Robert J. Sawyer, and the, the main character just happens to be blind, and uh, they're talking about evolution, and uh, one of the characters says, well, you know, if it was advantageous to have a third eye, say, in the back of your head, then evolution would have made that happen. But the thing that occurs to me that is that um, once humans started thinking about this stuff, if you had a child, an infant born with a third eye, your community would probably decide to kill it. <laughs> um, and so we've been interfering with evolution ever since we had the brain power to decide that we could. Um, and so mutants and mutations are a really interesting idea that I've been thinking about lately because um, we're a bit more tolerant of them now, but for a wide swath of human history, I'd say that mutations were discouraged uh, to the point of infanticide, if I may be so grim. Not being grim, you're being realistic. The fact is, we've always feared the unknown, haven't we? Uh, yes, and that's not necessarily, a, that. that's not a bad survival strategy as a species. It's not an enlightened philosophy, but if you're a, a hunter on the on the steps, you know, you see an animal you don't recognize, it's good to be afraid. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, it's, it's, none of that stuff is simple, that's for sure. Yeah. So was it hard for you growing up, having been uh, mostly blind for the, uh, your whole child life? I'd say the hard part was that it was variable. <clears throat> so my vision was changing all the time, um, pretty much on a steady decline, I would say. And so uh, my family chose to keep me in our community and, and in the regular school system, which was a constant battle to get me the resources I needed. And the problem was that I would finally get the thing and then my vision would change and the thing wasn't uh, working anymore. And so my childhood kind of turned into a continuous struggle to adapt. Uh, right. And that's exhausting for anyone. It's especially mm -hmm. exhausting for a kid. Uh, and, you know, my parents were working class. They were working hard. And uh, my mother devoted a lot of her time to getting me the access to the things that I should have. And she did a fabulous job of really advocating. Uh, but, you know, she had four kids, uh, older than me, four other kids and, and a husband and a job. And so um, 
<laughs> you might say she was sitting on her laurels because she had three other successful kids, and then she came out came you who needed a lot more work. Well, there's that. And so in one way, having four older siblings meant that she at least knew a lot about parenting by the time I came along. And right. potentially she had some some other people to help around the house and do some of the things that kids can take on. So mm -hmm. it was probably better that I was a fifth child, not the first of five. Um, but uh, I would never describe my mother as resting on her laurels because she worked her tail off relentlessly to not only to get me the things that I needed in the school system, but she had me enrolled in pottery classes and dance classes. And she just wanted to give me every opportunity possible to experience things and figure out where I fit uh, in the world. So it, yes, it was difficult. And I feel like some of those residual stresses still stick with me about that aspect of my childhood but at the same time I'm incredibly fortunate to have had uh, the, the mother that I did because she gave me so many opportunities to to learn about the world and figure out where I wanted to fit into it now I have to ask and and I'm not asking you to date yourself um, which decade did you grow up in Oh, no issue. I'm 52. So I was growing up and I was born in 1970. The, so. so you were in the 70s. Yeah, 70s, 80s. 70s and 80s. And and I I have to apologize because I only went blind about 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but what was life like back then as a blind individual? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, no audio description. No, uh -huh. never even heard of that not even invented yet. Um, the ideas of inclusion and access just weren't there in in the pop popular mindset the way they are today. Um, yes. The and you know wheelchair ramps those were radical at the time. So that's that's kind of the level of lack of access and inclusion that I'm talking about. Um, e Unfortunately, some stuff has not changed all that much. So like employment statistics for blind people, unfortunately, are not a lot better than they were. Um, I think kids in the regular school system have a somewhat easier time of things now. So, yeah. um, but still, uh, you know, the challenges are different. The challenges are different now, but um yeah, so I was the first blind kid in my school system, like in the separate school system. So the Catholic school board in Peel. And uh, so everything I did was a first. Um, no one had ever had a blind student. So I was the first in so many areas. Um, technology, huge, obviously. Um, I live independently in a way that I couldn't have done as an adult in the 70s. So um, text recognition, GPS, iPhones, email, online forms, paper going towards paperless society, technology hugely impactful. Uh, so, you know, we you could have got by. Of course, people lived independently as blind people in the 70s, but they would have had to rely on a lot more human volunteer assistance uh, right. to do that. Yeah. Would you would you say that that experience helped you 
mature into who you are now in terms of independence? I would say yes, in the sense of being resourceful. I think that when you have fewer options, you sink or swim. So if you have fewer options, you're more likely to develop the skills of resourcefulness and problem solving yes. um, and resilience, uh, resilience as well, that just bad stuff's more likely to happen to you if you don't have GPS, say, and how are you going to recover from that? Are you going to then not leave home anymore or are you going to choose to persist with your fear or your anxiety? So, um, yeah, resilience and resourcefulness, I'd say I was there was more opportunities to cultivate that when there were fewer safety nets. Uh, what sort of attitudes did you encounter with your peers in school? Mm, good question. Um, I don't remember. I, there was maybe one or two instances of, you know, bullying or being targeted, but very few. Um I definitely had friends all the way through the, in the in the normal kid way. I had friends who were just used to me. Um, I'd say things got a little weird in the teenage years because everyone gets so much more self-conscious of looking cool and not standing out. So yes. those were a little turbulent in the friendship realm, you know, um, because my friends at the time were more conscious of not wanting to look different or have friends who looked different um and i wonder sometimes if there's a way in which when you start out with a disability you're kind of forced to mature a bit faster and so i sometimes felt out of step with mm -hmm. my peers to a certain extent because they were complaining about too many tests in a week. And I was worried about the fact that I didn't even have the textbook yet. So yes. the problems I was dealing with were just so much more overwhelming that in some ways I was a bit alienated from, from my peers in that way. But overall, I think I, I socialize, I managed to socialize uh, well. And I, yeah, I had friendships all the way through my school years. Is it safe to say that, I know this is a common trope, but if you knew then what you know now, you'd be much more happier? I don't think so. It's hard to look. I mean, I can look back and think, oh, if I'd known about meditation or if I'd known how helpful massage can be for dealing with stress, um, those are very simplistic things that I think, but... I think when I was young, I really wanted to succeed. I really wanted to vindicate all the work that my mother had done to get me access. And kids just, they just don't have the emotional resources of an adult. And so um, in that respect, I don't look back and think, oh, if only I had dot, 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 because I'm not sure I had the capacity for anything more than what I achieved as a kid. And I did well in school. I had good marks and that mattered to me and it still does. I, I, I'm not sure how I would trade that off. And it's interesting because I look now at how 
young people uh, approach ideas of mental health. And so I knew of a young lady in high school who took a week off for mental health reasons. And I was shocked by that idea. And I thought when I was in school, I was lucky if I could lie to my mom and say I wasn't feeling well for a day just so I could stay home. And the idea of saying I need a mental health break was just not even on my radar. So that's not me personally, but it's it's a social trend that I look at and think, what if that had been true when I was a kid? What if the stress that kids experience was recognized when I was mm -hmm. a kid? How would my life have been different? And maybe I'd have a little less emotional baggage and maybe I would have been a C student instead of an A student. So uh, those are just things I wonder about, but I don't look back with, oh, I wish I'd known then what I knew now. It's just something I, I wonder about in an academic way. Yeah. And at the same time, you learn to appreciate what you didn't have back then. Yeah. And it made me tougher now so that when when I have to do the hard thing, whatever it is, I have the resolve to just do it, grit my teeth and just do it. And you know, if I decide it's the important thing to do, um, I have those skills that I developed of how to just grit your teeth and walk through it, you know, just move through the hard thing and get it done. Understandably so, sure. And you and I both live here in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So... Was it, was the snow hard for you? Oh my Is God, it hard yes. for you? <laughs> yes, hundred <laughs> percent. It's, it's the worst. I was just, <laughs> I was walking on the sidewalk yesterday thinking, okay, these conditions aren't the worst. Right now there's this patchy, lumpy, really hard, unpredictable, icy stuff with, you know, between right. cleared bits of sidewalk. And I was doing a little survey in my mind. Okay, I'm a connoisseur of the terrible sidewalk conditions. How do these stack up? These aren't bad. The worst is the thick, fluffy snow where the landmarks are completely indistinguishable and you don't know where the curbs are. And yeah, snow is a, a huge, uh, tough thing for navigating. In fact, some of my most hideous memories of of childhood stress or be, being lost and it could even be on my own street right just because the yeah. the landmarks are so blurred and uh and muted so now i even the simplest thing is helpful so now I, in in bad snow i sometimes use the compass on my phone like you don't even need cell coverage or wi-fi to make your compass work and at least you'll know which way is north and south and if you have a good sense of your cardinal directions in your neighborhood you'll at least know which way you're going so um yeah snow is is not nice for travel yeah i know i've always wondered if all the blind people congregate into the southern u.s <laughs> <laughs> if only because of the lack of snow <laughs> <laughs> that is one thing guide dog I don't have a guide dog and that is one area where guide dogs are good because they'll just hone in on where you you know you have routines of where you go and if you're heading home the dog probably figures that out and uh we'll just see that you get there um yeah yeah have you ever had a guide dog or thought of getting one I have I've had two so for a period of 16 years I did have uh have guide dogs and um definite pros and cons i ended up lining up on the side of i'd rather just stick with my cane but uh i definitely loved my dogs and they loved me and i um i'm aware of the the benefits i get i get that it, it's uh it gives you mm, a certain certain types of 
freedom in certain types of situations, but I've just decided that I'm better dog free. Now I have to, I, I have to ask you this because I've also thought the same thing. Was there a specific reason why you chose not to get continue with the guide dog? Uh, there was a handful of reasons. Um, <clears throat> in no particular order. Um, Living in Toronto, it's a very multicultural city, and I spent way more time than I wanted doing public education, trying to go into public spaces. I just got really tired of that piece. Uh, mm -hmm. In the winter, the dogs are dirty and wet and smelly. Every time you walk inside, you've got to dry off the dog, and it's still going to smell. Um, they require a lot of care. They're dogs, mm -hmm. right? They're biological. Yeah, so you're you're taking care every day. Uh, when I get inside, I can fold up my cane and it's all it's all put away um and just having another physical being dependent on me started to seem like more responsibility than i wanted mm -hmm. um and so uh yeah i'd say for those reasons i decided to take the much more slow and plodding method for me anyway of using a cane uh but i i get where i'm going and in some ways i actually know my environment better using a cane than I did using a dog. So it takes much more attention, much more mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. uh, some ways more stressful in the moment. But then when I get where I'm going, it's all folded up and um, I don't and have you the feel so much better. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And no, dogs get of... sick and yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I have to say for me, it's strictly the snow. Um, yeah. I mean, I, it would be great if I had, um, a nice backyard that was fully, well, in my case, fully, uh, grassed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I could just let her out in the backyard and shut the gate and I'd be happy. Mm -hmm. Um, but I can't do that because, well, in, in, well, the fact is my father-in-law planted a bloody grapevine in the back. <laughs> And, 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 you know, that's always hazardous to dogs. So you don't want to let her out there too much. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you do that and then your dog gets used to free relieving, as they call it. And, um, then it gets hard to make them go when you need them to go. And they exactly. go when you don't want them to go. And just a whole other level of biology that I'm personally speaking. Yeah. Without. Yeah. Like, very exactly. personal choice. Lots of people. For lots of people, it's absolutely the right answer. Now, were you able to get to post -ed education like university, college? I did. Yeah, I went to. Uh, I got a undergrad degree, and then I went to massage therapy school, and then I did one year of um, dispute resolution at U of T continuing ed. So. Uh, Various types of education over over the course of my life, uh, yeah, and those were all good experiences for me. And was was it easier to get the books you needed? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, so you know, 
this is many years ago. So I think my last foray into that kind of education was back in 2000 or something. So pre ebook availability. So I couldn't speak to what it's like for students now. Although I recently spoke to a young woman in her, I'd say late twenties who said that her university experience was as stressful sounding as mine was. So was it? Uh, yeah, I know I was disappointed. I was disappointed to hear that. Um, yeah, getting books was was always a challenge. Getting the instructor to pin down the book, getting the book, uh, that was that was a continual source of of fretting. But I do expect that for students now, that should be progressively easier. I I actually found it easier because the uh, my daughter went to a Catholic school growing up, mm -hmm. and um, they were ready, willing, and able to accommodate me. Right. Um, in that they could get me an electronic version of her textbooks. Nice. And That's I great. was able to help her with her homework. Yay. Um, so I was actually happy about that. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah, a lot of teachers don't actually take the time to help parents include themselves in their children's lives. And mm. I would think that's important. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine the life of a teacher and how, what, I don't know what their lives are like, what their work lives are like, and what their capacity is. Uh, but yeah, parents are natural allies, obviously, in the learning mm -hmm. process. So it's great that you as a parent were able to get access to the same material that your daughter was working from. Yeah, yeah. Um, were you able to meet someone throughout your experiences? And, and I mean, how was your social life? Oh, oh, uh, yep. Yeah, my social life's never been a, an issue. I'm very proactive and I know sort of how to meet people. And, um, you know, like in university, um, of course, it's a tough adjustment period, but uh, I joined the science fiction fantasy club because that's my, my thing. That's what I like. So I, you know, I met people that I had things in common with. Uh, um, I've never been one for, I usually go for quality over quantity uh, I would say uh, so I but I've always throughout my life I've I feel like I've had good friendships good solid friendships and that's um, that's still true it's all sort of mm -hmm. always been true and, and still true uh, and romantically too I've been lucky and not just lucky I made make things happen um, but I've um, I'm not sure how I figured out the skills of how to meet people and how to make that happen. Um, part of it is mm, not being cursed with shyness, I suppose, <laughs> where I, I'm willing to take risks uh, and sometimes they pan out and sometimes they don't. Uh, but sure. I feel like that's an element of my life that has, has been pretty successful. I mean, you do seem to be very outgoing and very What's the word I'm looking for? Presentable, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of it comes with age, right? I think a lot about this. Like, so I'm 52, and I, you're kind of always the same person your whole life. But I think the older you get, you sort of distill a bit. You become more of the person that you've always been. And I definitely find in the last few years, I'm much more forthright and able to say what I want to say with a minimum of, you know, hostility or antagonism, but just be a very clear communicator and, 
speak with confidence. I figure if I'm not, if I'm, if I'm not going to start speaking with confidence now, when is that going to happen? And so I, I sort of look around me at people who speak confidently and carry themselves in a certain way. And I think, well, they must be smarter than me or they must know more than me. But lately I've begun to realize, no, that's actually not necessarily true. It's, it's kind of a choice you make. And uh, if I'm not going to project that now, what am I waiting for? And so it's one of the nice parts about getting older for me is that I, I care less. <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have less. The stakes seem lower. I, I don't know something. I just feel more comfortable to, to be forthright. And there's less filtering. And I don't mean that means that I swear in professional situations or tell people what I really think of them all the time. I don't mean that. I just mean there's less shyness or apprehension or reservations between the things I think and me wanting to communicate them to the world. So you were much more hostile and, and antagonistic as a, as a, a younger person. <laughs> Did I say that? I probably did imply that. Um, I think I had, um, Oh, that's a good question. I mean, no, I, 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 how much do you advocate for yourself or do you just let things go? Uh, in other words, you can't be bothered. Um, yes and yes. I'd say I choose my, my issues. Um, I, I kind of want to go back to the antagonism thing. I actually think I'm not, I, I'm just as antagonistic or hostile as I ever was. I think what I've learned and, and, I gotta tell you, everyone should learn, everyone should take courses on alternative dispute resolution because what you learn is how to reframe something. So instead of saying, you're a real jerk, mm -hmm. you know, you can say, the things you're doing are making it difficult for me to relate to you. You see what I mean? So you just reframe it. So I still uh -huh. have as much you know, antagonism appropriately direct. I'm not a, I'm, a, I'm pretty, I'm actually a very nice person, but you know, sometimes antagonism is warranted and I'm still as likely to feel it. I'm just more able to mediate it through better language. And is this really important in the big picture? Am, am I going to engage my emotions in this or am I just going to accept that this is the way the world is? So some of the things I used to feel antagonistic about, I just like, oh, I'm never going to change that, you know? So I'm, yeah, but yeah. Um, a lot of it is about how I express my feelings, whether I bother to express my feelings and whether it's worth my time. So um, do I advocate Advocacy isn't a big part of my day-to-day -day life, um, but if I find myself in a real-world situation where it comes up, I'm probably going to step up and just say the true thing, like, oh, well, actually, you can't, you know, please don't grab me. That's really not cool. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, in those nice terms, or were you much more hostile? Well, I mean, it depends personally. on the moment. I'm usually in public. I usually do try because you never know who you're talking to. They could be a loose cannon with a knife in their pocket, right? So I try to keep in mind when I'm in a public space, like don't don't go off on someone because you just never know. Now, have you lived anywhere else besides Toronto, or has it always have you always lived here? Um, the farthest I've been away was uh, Waterloo, where I went to to university. But for the most part, it's uh, it's been all Toronto. Okay. Now, I've been racking my brain. Now, Malek is – what sort of nationality is that? Uh, it's Eastern European. So my 
dad's parents came from Galicia, which is a territory that got sort of carved up between Poland and the Ukraine and uh, different area, different polities in uh, in Eastern Europe. So it's a it's an Eastern European name. And my uh, mother's parents were from Ireland. From Ireland. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's that's interesting. Uh, I feel a bit more of a connection to that, um, mostly because my mother grew up in Toronto and that's where we grew up. My dad came from the prairies and didn't really care much about sharing his his background with, with our family. So sure. my, my sort of more cultural identity is, is with Ireland. Right, right. Yeah, I guess I guess European parents don't actually share that much because uh, I remember my parents didn't share anything about their past it's it's a very interesting topic to me i it's something i wonder a lot about uh the immigrant experience and how that may have changed over time because um there's less of a sense now that you have to blend in now it's kind of okay to have your own cultural community and it's kind of understood that you know, you might come here from Somalia and you can keep your culture and your kid's going to grow up with some Somali stuff, but your kid's going to be a Canadian. And mm -hmm. that's much more acceptable now than, say, in the 50s or 40s when my parents would have been forming their views of the world. Uh, yes. And, mm, yeah, I think there's just less of a need to conform and more of an encouragement to you to keep your culture but and it depends what you're fleeing from right and sure. what your family background is some people come here because where they came from was absolutely devastating and maybe they just want to spare their kids that or or some parents think the best thing i can do for my kid is to let them be 100 percent canadian because this is where they live yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's that that topic is a really interesting one to me. How do new Canadians frame their sense of their kids, their kids' identity, and how do they how do they deal with that? Uh, in my parents' case, I think my dad just hated his family, <laughs> so <laughs> he just wanted to get as far from them as he could and not talk about them with uh, in anymore. Uh, whereas my mother's cousins and stuff were all still in Toronto, and uh, so that was more of a part of my growing up. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I mean, living in Toronto is far different than living in, in, in Europe at that time. Yeah, yeah. Or Saskatchewan, even. Or or even Saskatchewan, my yes. God. Yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of diversity back then, you know, in the, in the 1930s. Do you have, did you, were you able to speak your, your dad's mother tongue or? Oh, no, no, not at all. He, yeah, he completely left it all behind in Saskatchewan. In fact, that's so interesting that you say his mother tongue. I don't think it's ever crossed my mind that he must have had another language mm -hmm. growing up. His parents probably didn't speak to him in English. Oh my gosh. I have never thought of that before. That's amazing. Um, no, he left it all behind. He never talked about it. The most I ever got about his background came from my mother. Uh, she thought it was important for us to know a little bit, but he was completely devoted to the idea that he didn't have a past to share with his with his kids. And so, yep, thanks for that. It never occurred to me till this moment that my dad at some point in his life must have been bilingual. So I'm not uh, sure whether to apologize. No, or, no, or... that's lovely. That's a lovely <laughs> idea. I, I I can't believe I never considered it. Thanks. Thanks for that. I mean, was it 
did, were you able to be employed right after school or or uh, what was a, your employment situation like? Yeah, that's a tough one. It's something I started tussling with in high school because I wanted a part-time job, right? I wanted some money. And the kind of part-time jobs kids get are really not blind friendly. It's like a cashier, a server, you know, a busser in a restaurant. So a lot of jobs were closed to me uh, as a teenager. And then uh, when I graduated from university, I, I kind of, with open eyes, you might say, knowingly studied stuff that was not going to be directly employable with the idea that I would then take a trade or something, which I did. So as, as soon as I came out of university, I applied to a massage therapy school um, because it was a distinct skill set. It was obvious where I was going to be employed. It was be obvious what I wanted to work on. And it was a field where um, there was some cultural expectation that I might be good at it rather than a cultural expectation that I couldn't do it. So uh, even so, uh, finding work was a bit challenging. I would argue partly because I had a guide dog at that time. I think that guide dogs and healthcare settings don't naturally mix. And Toronto being a multicultural city, employers had an eye to that. They'd be looking mm -hmm. at the dog thinking, oh, some of my clients aren't going to really like that. Uh, sure. So employment was still a challenge there. Um, so I worked in that field for 20 years and I ended up um, working out of a, having a home-based practice for about 10, 10 years of that time. And then since then, my work has been within the disability community and, and the arts and science sciences. So uh, employment is uh, much less of a, a difficulty because at this point in my career, disability is my, my stock and trade. It's the thing that I talk about and teach about and advocate for. So uh, employment has become a lot more straightforward for me uh, in the last, you know, five years or so since I left. Um, to client care and massage therapy and started doing consulting work. Now I have to, I have to address the elephant in the room. Disclosure. Mm -hmm. Your what blindness. I would, yeah, so the way I approached it was there was always something on my resume mm -hmm. that would indicate if the person read the resume thoroughly, they would see like guide dog training or something. So if they couldn't put two and two together, I figured that wasn't my fault. So, uh, but there were definitely times <laughs> where I walked, where I walked into an interview and I could tell they hadn't read the resume thoroughly. And I knew in the first 30 seconds, there's not a chance in, that I'm getting this job. It's, we're wasting our time. I just know it. Uh, sure. and that was discouraging. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a, yeah, I'm a fan of allowing disclosure to happen as in, making putting it there for the person to see and if they don't see it well it's because they weren't reading they didn't they didn't look carefully and that's their choice if you don't read a resume carefully you can't be too shocked at what you get because you didn't prepare right um mm -hmm. so i feel like i wanted to do that because if someone had such overt biases that they knew they'd never hire a blind person i'd rather not waste our time by me going in for an interview uh, right. So that was always my approach is put it in the resume in some form um, mm -hmm. and let them do what they wanted with it. Now, how much did organizations help you? <laughs> they tried. If at all, if yeah, at all. There was always, you know, oh, come for our employment program and we'll teach you how to, 
make a resume and do all that stuff. And did that really help? <coughs> I'm, I'm iffy on that. And um, it, I sometimes think about the, there's a few ways this plays out in the olden days, back in like the sixties and stuff, they used to have a <laughs> workshop at the CNIB where people made brooms and it sounds pretty <laughs> sketchy, but mm -hmm. It was employment for blind people and CNIB had programs where uh, cater plan, I think it was called, where government buildings and stuff had catering facilities that employed blind people. It was just a thing, one of the streams right. you could get into. And there's one train of thought that doesn't like that because it's ghettoizing and streaming. Another stream of thought is you don't have to fight the system to get a job. And so... Another way this plays out is in the U.S., for example, there are companies who specialize in making their workplace amenable to blind people. And uh, it's a bit ambivalent to me, but one of the big things is they make military clothing, like military uniforms. That's one of the industries that is run in this way. Mm -hmm. uh, it used to be that they did something similar. The concession stands, like where you'd buy chips and pop and stuff in government buildings were prioritized that blind people would get those concessions. And so I'm actually in kind of in favor of that because for most of my employment life, I just wanted a freaking job. Like I didn't need to have the most rewarding job in the world. I just wanted a job and the legwork and the, the energy work and for anyone finding a job is an agonizing experience. When you have a disability, when you walk into the room, knowing that people are looking at you going, Oh, what? And it's up to you to convince them that you're an actual employable human. Uh, that's so tiring. And so, so many times in my life, if I could have got a job washing dishes at Tim Hortons and I knew I could walk in and it would be, the job would be handed to me and I'd, I'd be trained in a way that made sense and people weren't going to be afraid of me and I could go and do my work and come home, I would have jumped at it. So, um, there's, there's arguments against ghettoizing or if you, whatever the word, right word is for that. But um, the employment statistics are depressingly consistent over decades. And so yes. sometimes you just look at a problem and go, all right, let's just address this in a practical way. How can we get people working? And uh, that in, in all of my professional life, that's always been a priority. Like, I just want a job. Like, I don't need to change the world with my job. I mean, Ideally, sure, of course, I want a job that's rewarding. But for so many times in my life, I just want to support myself. I just want to have, I just want to have a job. So yes. that means working at something a little less rewarding, but where I'm the norm rather than the sore thumb sticking out, I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. Now I have to say, uh, and I, I'm not saying this with any sort of shyness. You have an amazing voice. Thank you. And there is a reason for that, isn't there? I don't know that. What do you think the reason is? You've got so many projects that involve your voice. Oh, well, no, that's a result more of me having a good voice. Like It's cause and effect, I guess. It's hard isn't to see what's what what the cause and effect is there but um you know so you don't actually try i mean this voice comes naturally to you it does now it does now so this is interesting someone who's also in voice work said to me a while ago when you hear your recorded voice on a scale of one to ten one being 
I hate the sound of it. I don't even recognize my own voice. And 10 being, yeah, sounds great. I always know, you know, it sounds like me. Where do you fit? And I said, yeah, I'm a 10. Like, I recognize the sound of my own voice. I think it works well. And even though she's in voice work, she said, I'm a, I'm a two or three. I, I can't stand the sound of my voice. And so I really think that there must have been a time that I've forgotten when I heard my recorded voice and thought, I don't like that. As most people do, they hear their voice, ooh, I sound like that. So I think there must have been a time when I took it on and mm-hmm. thought, no, I want to sound something. I want to sound different from the way I sound right now. So sure. there may have been a time where I somehow cultivated it. And I'm a singer too, which helps. Like mm-hmm. if you sing, you have at least a certain amount of consciousness of breath and projection. Um, but uh, the vo- I never trained for voice work at all. And mm-hmm. I think it's something I gradually slipped into. So you're absolutely right. Almost all of my work these days involves some level of speaking or singing or presenting uh, mm-hmm. with my voice. And But I don't remember consciously saying, I'm going to cultivate my voice. I'm going to make my voice into something. I, there was definitely times where I thought, I want to learn to read an audiobook mm-hmm. and I took that on and it's something that I've I've re- I've done I've read one of my own books and I've read done other readings in other contexts so that's a skill that's you really have to work on um but my actual voice I I don't know what the cause and effect uh relationship is there but it, I'm pretty sure it's something that at some point I thought I want to be better at that I want to sound more honed and and professional and pleasing to the ear so i don't remember a conscious process of that happening but i think i must have taken it on as something i wanted to be better at now you answered the question i was about to pose in that have you ever thought of audiobook narration um i guess my question is i mean i'm not sure if you know this but lorelei king uh wrote a book about her experiences as a an audiobook narrator and voiceover actress um it, it, it seemed like a lot more work than people give it credit for <laughs> that's true it's very true and uh the book that i chose was my own work like it was something i had written so mm-hmm. number 1 that's easier to work with your own work but it's a lot of work a lot of work and there's a lot of great readers out there and so it's not a career path that i'm interested in pursuing because uh to get work is is difficult the work is demanding um you know if someone came to me with a project and said here we're gonna pay you lots of money to do this i would jump at it i'd be happy yeah no kidding that's it's work that you really have to chase and uh i'm i'm at this point in my life i'm happy to say that work seems to be finding me which has never been true in my professional life so i'm very happy to just keep doing what i'm doing and making connections and have the work find me so audiobook narration is something you really have to hustle uh to succeed at and uh yeah i i I enjoy it but it is demanding and i don't really know what the pay scale is i don't know if it's you know worth all of the effort but the chasing down is where i get bogged down i'm i'm done trying to chase work i want work to find me yeah so uh, the work comes to you what sort of work is that um it's 
broadly speaking, it's consulting on how to make arts and science more accessible for blind people. So um, one of my mainstays is I run programs for blind adults through the CNIB. I do four of those per month. Uh, I do a segment uh, on AMI, Kelly and Ramia, each month uh, called Curious Minds. I consult with audio describers when they are developing scripts for audio description. They may want to run it by a, a blind person or three to see if they're getting it right. Um, mm -hmm. And more recently, I've been working with an audio describer and different parts of NASA to make astronomical images more accessible by describing them or by making sound representations of them and um, oh, really? also teaching that technique to other science educators. Uh, yeah, it's super exciting because I've always been an astronomy geek, a science fiction lover ever since I was a kid. So um, having the chance to help science organizations make astronomy more accessible and inclusive is like dream come true land uh, for me. I mean, I have to ask, I mean, what sort of uh, sounds do you come up with in terms of astronomical data? So what, what happens is when most astronomical data that you get, say the James Webb telescope or the Chandra X-ray observatory, that's not a visual representation. It's not like a camera. And not you look even at the close. Image. Sure. Yeah, yeah, it's not things that the human eye can see. So when they're posting images, those are very constructed. Those are taking the data and translating them into a visual format so that they make sense for a sighted viewer. Another option is to take that data and translate it into sound. And so there's a musician, he's an astrophysicist and musician named Matt Russo, and he does this, he makes sonifications. And so he'll take data from a, an image. Well, it's not an image yet. He'll take data from an observation and correspond sounds to the data. So he'll use musical pitches and different instruments to make an auditory representation of the data instead of a, vi of a visual one. And sighted people like these too, uh, but for blind people, they're directly educational in a way that uh, <clears throat> they, you know, they don't quite reach that level for, for sighted people. So that's one of the, that's kind of the way that sound is being used to make astronomy more accessible for, uh, for blind people. That is amazing, isn't it? It's quite, it's quite an experience to listen to. It's very, mm, it engages your senses because for sighted people, they, everyone has the experience of looking up at the night sky, which is yes. profound, you know, or even looking at images can be on the screen, can still be profound. Um, and it's because reading a summary of what the data means is important and mind expanding and intellectually challenging. But to experience it through your senses gives it another level of engagement and sure. having sound ascribed to the data allows a blind person to do that. It allows us to use our senses to try and understand something that's really difficult to understand. Yeah, I, I mean, embarrassingly enough, I can honestly say I've always taken looking up at the at the night sky for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know, that's fair. I used, to, Why I used to stare at the sun and not care about anything. <laughs> Well, it's one of the ways that 
people connect to to the larger universe, right? And look up in the night sky. Humans have been doing that ever since we've had humans, right? It's yes. one of the ways we place ourselves in the universe. And so it's a, something that blind people just don't, by definition, we don't have access to. So it's pretty amazing to have uh, a sensory opportunity to to at least dip your toe in, in some of that. So aside from the astronomy work, what else is coming up for Christine Millet? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Luminato Toronto Festival is coming up in June, and that's a kind of a 10-day arts and culture fest in Toronto that happens at many different locations. And for the last couple of years, they've had an audio-only component called Radio Lumi, and uh, it gives a, a view of the festival from an audio perspective geared towards people who are blind or low vision. So there's audio description incorporated into it and lots of description rich conversations. So we are in the process of building that content uh, now. And so there'll be a six week long podcast series to sort of flesh out the, the themes and the pieces of the Luminato festival. And also um, more recently I've, become interested in the art of storytelling which means not reading but the sitting in a group of people and telling a story and so I've had a few experiences of public performance of that and I've been accepted to tell a couple of original stories I like I love writing writing is my first sort of my first love and so I've been uh, accepted to perform two of my original stories at the storytelling Toronto festival in May so uh, one of them is already written. The other one is in process of writing. And they're quite fun because they are, I love historical fiction. That's my genre of choice. And these are two stories about blind musicians in history. So people who existed in the 16, 1700s, mm-hmm. they were blind. They were notable musicians of their time. And what I have tried to do is take some of the facts of their lives and imagine my way around it. So what was it like to be blind in 1712? And um, if you were rich, that was very different from if you were poor. And if you were educated, that was very different from if you were not. If you had a a celebrated skill such as musicianship, uh, Mm -hmm. your experience was going to be different than if you were a servant. So uh, my stories are about uh, three blind musicians who did exist in Western Europe and were noted musicians of their time. And uh, the Storytelling Festival of Toronto has welcomed me to tell uh, two of my stories uh, and that will be happening in May. So this is a really new thing for me uh, to, and I love it. I, it's a great, it's kind of like public speaking, but it's a little more artsy and performative sure. uh, than that. So it draws on, different skills than different skills from the ones I'm used to, but some of the same ones as well. So it's a real challenge to yeah. me and very fun. It's, it's very fun to sit in front of a crowd and own it. And, you know, can you hold the dramatic pause? Are you comfortable enough to breathe slowly and take your time because you're confident you have the audience's attention? What kind of, public stage persona can you make for yourself these are things that i'm working through uh myself as i prepare to to tell stories uh publicly so that's that's 
that's what's coming up for me. Very exciting stuff. And I'm teaching, <laughs> this is crazy to me. I'm going to be uh, on a panel at the South by Southwest conference in, in Austin, Texas in March, uh, talking about sonifications as a, as a consumer of them. So I'll be on a panel with people who create them. Uh, and that's, that's a, that's a really huge deal for me, actually. I'm not a big traveler to the United States, but I got offered the opportunity to present alongside some, some really amazing people. Uh, as part of my consultation work for that. So uh, that's coming up uh, as well. So it's a great time in my professional life, that's for sure. So you are famous. Oh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a moderate fish in a small pond. Is the No. Uh -uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, one cannot say that about you, Christine. The fact well, is <laughs> I, I liked, I'm fond of saying there's never been a better time to be blind. And the reason I say that is that, especially since the pandemic, issues of accessibility and inclusion have really come to the forefront of the public consciousness. And right. I just happen to be in the right place at the right time uh, and have a few skills that situated me to, uh, to play around with some of the skills I already had and expand on them and in an environment, a cultural environment that's very welcoming to marginalized folk. Uh, at this at this moment in history, right, right. I have to say, I mean, you you are everything I hope a blind person can achieve. <gasps> oh, 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 gosh! Thank you. That's that's a real honor. Thank you very much. I I nice really believe that, and and your drive and ambition is amazing. Oh, oh, thank you. I'm blushing. Press his <laughs> hand to blushing cheek. That's my audio description, my self-description. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that description. <laughs> I have to say, um, if you can stick around after the interview, I want to talk to you about your art and science projects. Um, as, however, I want to thank you for being on the show. I I think you your interview is going to go a long way to helping other blind individuals to get past their blindness in a way that makes it a secondhand issue as opposed to a firsthand issue. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I hope it's not the only way people define themselves, define ourselves, because there's a lot more to, to life than that. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome. Not sure if you guys noticed, but Christine has one hell of a voice. So she is, she's got a, a personality for voice. She's got a voice for voice work and, uh, voiceover work so you might say I really hope she does a lot more with her voice because I think it'll get her a long way I'm dying to listen to some of her spoken word material because I think she can do a great job of it hope you enjoyed the interview this week as always, we'll be back again next week with another everyday story of an everyday life with blindness. Bye-bye, everybody. Catch Meet Me every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific 
on whose blind life is it anyway? Till next week.